everybody out there. Wow, it's it's really good to be back on the mic uh, after about two weeks off. Uh, I don't know if anybody out there who's been listening has been missing me, but uh, I've definitely been missing uh, doing the show. So it's really good to be back. Um, as usual, I guess there's an explanation about the theme song for today. I just chose the earliest Hockey Night in Canada uh, theme I could get because we're going way back on today's show um, and I hope that we all enjoy it and uh, it's definitely going to be a learning experience for everyone and, and one that I hope that everybody enjoys but uh, you know wow this is what season two of a podcast feels like uh, it's a lot like season one if you <laughs> if you didn't realize it on this end of the microphone probably feels the same way out there as well but uh, most of all welcome back and thanks so much for tuning in after uh, a two-week break I really appreciate it I just needed to take a break refresh do some writing and and just sort of recharge the batteries and and come back stronger so i appreciate all of you out there who are returning and if you're a new listener i really appreciate you too uh, for checking me out and checking the show out Uh, but like i said definitely needed that break for sure you know it was just kind of like i said great to get a get a minute to get some more reading in also because that's really uh, part of the fuel that drives this show is being able to read some books and just get refreshed i mean think all of us out there have just needed to sort of get a refresh over this last year of course uh, but uh, like most of you I, I was watching a ton of hockey too and I can say it's really been a great season so far with a lot of good storylines unfortunately uh, COVID's been a big one lately with some cancellations uh, or postponements really uh, so let's just stand by for that and hope for better in, in the future as, as the NHL navigates its way through this um, but definitely there's also been some big trades uh, and some surprise teams, uh, both good and bad side of things. So, you know, really, it's all the drama you could ask for for the start of an NHL season. But like I said, unfortunately, COVID is realistic and it's, it's definitely been rearing its head. So, But now that we're in February, I wanted to make sure to uh, recognize some special accomplishment of black hockey players as it's Black History Month here in the U.S. and in Canada. Uh, in my literary uh, hockey journey, it's been a real pleasure and, in a way, a duty to read and absorb the stories of great black hockey players who have blazed such a long and difficult path for black hockey players to uh, enjoy the uh, fruits of their labor by playing in the NHL and other higher leagues today. Oftentimes, I feel their accomplishments, though, are kind of really often sort of uh, minimized, for lack of a better term. Uh, even today, you still often hear people say, well, there aren't that many black hockey players out there. Uh, just to give you a little bit of statistic, in 2019, USA Today reported that only 3% of the NHL players were people of color, and of that 3%, only 26 players were black. That number might have changed a bit in the last two years, but my, my guess is not by much, really. Well, why is it not enough why is it not more to me it's it's because the struggle for black equality in hockey has been uh, going on since at least the 1930s sure willie o'ree broke into the nhl with the bruins on january 18th uh, 1958 which the bruins did an excellent job of recognizing an anniversary and retiring his number uh, well overdue uh, and congratulations to mr o'ree there uh but when he did that he forever changed the game but there was a whole lot of things that happened Uh, like most things, to get him to that point well before Willie came along. Uh, There were many untold stories of talent that couldn't uh, really get to where he was and and probably should have made it to the NHL before Willie did. Uh, 
also not to take away from Willie and his great speed and talent, but there was really especially one player who stood out and might have been an even better player than him who uh, was unable to crack the color barrier. Herbert Carnegie grew up playing hockey in the suburbs of Toronto and showed tremendous talent at an early age. A largely self-taught player, he rose quickly to the rank, in the ranks of junior hockey in Toronto in the late 1930s and was quickly making a name for himself. He was leading teams to provincial titles and getting noticed uh, by scouts at all levels, really. At the end of his time in junior, he had played well enough to get a look from NHL clubs, but they wouldn't invite them into their training camps. Players who were Herb was better than were getting a look, though, but not Herb. Why? Because he was black. That didn't stop Carnegie from playing, though. He kept it up, playing at senior leagues all over Quebec and Ontario, remote mining towns, and then later, most famously almost, in Quebec City with the Aces. Herb was every bit as good a player as the white players that he was playing with. Hall of Famer Frank Mahovlich played with Herb in those days and said, quote, I was just amazed at the way he played. He was much superior to the others on the ice, end quote. Still, Herb Carnahy never made it to the NHL. The reasons why are simple, yes, but Herb's story is anything but simple, and thankfully he decided to tell it in his story, tell his story in his autobiography, A Fly in a Pail of Milk. It's an important story to the history and fabric of the game, and I'm really excited to dive into it and start a discussion about it, as it is really the start of the journey for breaking the color barrier into the NHL. Uh, bottom line, there would be no Willie O'Ree without Herb Carnegie. Without Herb Carnegie. So let's start to answer that and many other questions as we get into the warm-up right after this. The son of Jamaican immigrants, good enough a golfer to become a two-time Canadian amateur champion, Carnegie was a talented player, the headlines of the day flattering, even if politically incorrect by today's standards. He had a good career in the Quebec Senior League, a teammate and lifelong friend of Jean Beliveau's. They were reunited a couple of years ago. I backhanded the, the puck and hit Holly in the shin pads and went past uh, Plum. That's how I got my goal. You shouldn't say that. You should say you ripped a wrist shot for 25 feet right by Jacques Plant's glove. So that was the man himself. You heard a little bit from uh, Herb right there. That was Elliot Friedman from uh, Hockey Night in Canada doing a segment on Herb and his life. And what I like about that segment is kind of a quick overview of what Herb's life was all about in hockey and a little bit outside of it uh, and what his background is. So I think that's good as we get into the uh, warm-up here uh, just to start things out. Uh, the end of that interview uh, was uh, Herb talking about scoring against Jacques Plant in the uh, Quebec uh, Provincial Senior League there. So uh, interesting story, awesome. But uh, that's the voice of the man, which we'll hear a little bit more uh, throughout this episode. So starting the warm-up, I just want to start and say I think it's a bit of a misconception to think about racism as a problem that is largely American and not something that Canadians of color face and have faced in the past. Sure, violence and strife in the U.S. over racial relations has been and continues to be a big roadblock to the true realization of equality for all in the country. And the images of slavery in the Jim Crow South are still to this day uh, absolutely unexplainable 
and, reprehen and a reprehensible stain on the past of the uh, country. But to define the underlying issues of race as purely an American problem is very naive, to put it lightly. While Canada may not have been guilty of the sins of, on the level of the U.S. with regards to the treatment of their black populations, this is not to say that uh, racism was not part of the past and uh, probably definitely the current part of uh, Canadian society. In the late 1930s, when Herb Carnegie grew up, he certainly saw it. Well, it was not overt like it might have been in the U.S., it was clear to Herb that in Canada and Toronto of that time, there were certain doors he could not enter because of the color of his skin. Still, this fact was something that didn't bother to stop Herb Carnegie. He wanted to play in the NHL and loved hockey so much he kept working towards that goal. In work he did, Carnegie excelled on the ice and even made sure to maneuver himself into the right secondary school to get noticed by junior scouts. He and his brother Ozzy became a force in junior hockey and were certainly noticed. Herb had the reputation for being able to move the puck. As he put it, uh, as he put it in the book, it gained him the nickname Swivel Hips. One of the people who noticed Swivel Hips Carnahee was Con Smythe, the famous owner of the Maple Leafs, who happened to watch the practice of Carnegie while he was playing with the young Toronto Rangers who played at Maple Leaf Gardens at that time. The young Rangers coach had mentioned to Herb that he was noticed by Smythe and that he thought his hockey playing was great. The only issue was the color of his skin. As the famous quote went, Smythe had told other people that he quote, would pay $10,000 to anyone who could tur turn Herb Carnegie white. To this point, the racism described by Carnegie in Fly was largely unintrusive to his life, more of a nuisance. We'll talk more about the effect of Smythe's uh, words, uh, especially to Herb's playing career, but as for li his life story, I can tell you that this is a moment that Herb Carnegie would not forget. What sticks out to anyone who reads Fly in a Pail of Milk is that Herb did not let this moment stop him from excelling in every venture he took in life uh, from then on. But it was something that definitely stuck with him, uh, as we'll hear in an interview that I'll play a little bit later. Uh, I really enjoyed, though, reading the uh, positive yet real spin that Herb had uh, put on his past experiences that he puts into the book. In his ventures in hockey, business, and golf, and in life, Carnegie offers the reader a realistic look at the events that shaped his life and offers a even more realistic thought into how it affected him. It's really something to know that while he didn't make the NHL, he still had a 20-year career of playing hockey, and he played and with and was respected by some of the game's greatest players. But Herb's story in Fly in a Pail of Milk is so much more than a hockey life. It's a life of seeing barriers and breaking them, even despite being actively or inactively put in, those barriers being put in front of him. But for all the heavy stuff I have to say before we dive into that, simply Herb's story is a great story, and it's told very well by Herb. And the ones in this book, the stories that he tells, are absolutely great. So as we look at discussing flying a pill of milk, I think we need to start with Herb's life through the ranks of minor pro hockey. It's a way through professional hockey that was both normal and abnormal for many players 
regardless of race in the 1940s and 50s. It was a great ride and one that I'm sure even Carnegie would say was he was something that was uh, something he was proud of. So let's get to it and start the first period with a discussion of Herb's professional hockey career and how he started the conversation and moved the needle towards seeing the first black player skate in the NHL. Stand by, we drop the puck on the first period after this. Herb Carnegie was one of the best players to never play pro league hockey. Herb Carnegie plays on a line with his brother Ozzie and Manny McIntyre. The three of them get a lot of attention. Everybody wants to see them. The forum wants to have them, but they'll play in Sherbrooke. It's the top attraction in all of hockey. The Sherbrooke Tribune, November 16, 1945. Playing for the Sherbrooke St. Francis, the black line becomes a sensation. Carnegie becomes one of the best players in the Quebec Senior Hockey League. He's voted his team's most valuable player two years in a row. Amazingly, he went on to capture the MVP award for a third year. Despite this, Carnegie was never given the opportunity to play in the NHL. Carnegie was told that the sole reason he never played in the NHL was quite simple, the color of his skin. That was from a short documentary about Herb Carnegie's life. And what I really liked about that is it's a good brush uh, overview of sort of the early part of his career that I want to talk about and concentrate on. Um, we'll get to the later parts in, in future periods, but this period we're going to really concentrate on uh, his start in uh, moving up through the ranks, eventually uh, getting towards the NHL. Uh, as you'll see, he got very, 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 very close to playing in the NHL. Um, but we'll discuss that part in the second period. But for now, um, I just want to say welcome to the first period, as always. Um, but I think when we look at Herb Carnegie, you got to say, like many great and talented young players in Canada, Herb Carnegie played major junior hockey in the OHL and started his career towards the NHL. Uh, many back then did it, and many do it now. As mentioned earlier, he played for the junior Toronto Young Rangers, netting 16 points and leading the team in his uh, uh, first in his junior season with them. But unlike many other players who could be considered the best on his junior team, Herb did not even get an invite to join an NHL franchise's training camp for a tryout. Herb wasn't naive. He knew it was about the color of his skin, but at the time he still loved playing the game and thought that he'd just have to keep working hard so that it made it absolutely no sense for NHL clubs not to take a look at him. He was sort of shaken up by Con Smythe's words and wanted to show him differently. Um, and that's what his early career really became about. Um, but as you'll see, um, even today, if you were to ask Herb, who's no longer with us, but if he was able to speak with us, I'm pretty sure he would tell you that uh, there was probably something to what Smythe said and something about Smythe's racism that probably kept him away from other teams, at least uh, for a while there, uh, even though he recognized the talent. But back to Herb's career uh, and, and what things were like there for him in the, in the 40s. Um, I think one thing that you have to realize that may be uh, one of the realities that is outside of race here too and just kind of indicative of the original Six era is uh, 
that the NHL was in full swing of the original six era at that time in the 40s, and as such, there was only so many spots for players on NHL rosters. Uh, really, only about 120 or so men could actually be on NHL, uh, NHL rosters at any one given time. That meant that many players uh, that would be considered NHL caliber today had to find other ways to play hockey for a living uh, because they couldn't crack an NHL lineup. That was actually very, very tough to do. There were many different ways for players to continue to be paid to play hockey even after their junior eligibility was up at age 20. Senior leagues offered a last chance for many who were good, uh, but just not good enough to get into the NHL system. For Herb, who was certainly good enough at the time to make the NHL but couldn't because of racism, senior leagues would offer him a way to continue to hone his skills and hope that the attitudes on race would change enough in the ensuing years for him to make his break into the NHL while he was able. This led Carnegie to the northern, to northern Quebec and Ontario mining towns to play hockey for uh, different uh, mining-sponsored teams in those cities. He had to slug it out living in remote sections of Canada, working in the mines and playing with the, with the uh, mines, with playing with the uh, mine-sponsored teams, uh, basically using his wages uh, be from the mines as the money that he needed to live. It wasn't really hockey that was paying him, it was his job at the mine. Uh, hockey was an income that uh, just wasn't going to make him enough to live at that point. But from the beginning, he had his brother, Ozzy, who, uh, and the two were excelling from the beginning together. Herb tells the story of his first playing gig in northern Quebec and the isolation of the town and the small house that he lived in. It was just absolutely crazy to think that he was that dedicated to the game and was trying to make it into the NHL, that he would do that, that he would live in those conditions. Uh, definitely an interesting part of the book for me uh, that uh, I really drove home his dedication at the time and his resolve. But uh, after a small stint of being there, he moved on to the northern Ontario town of Anchorage, uh, along with his brother Ozzy. It was there in Anchorage that the Carnegie's teamed up with another fellow black player, Manny McIntyre, uh, to form a line known as the Black Aces, uh, the top line for the Bisons at the time. The Aces were often seen as a novelty due to the color of their skin, but they were anything but. The Aces line was the best in the key to the Bison, best line on the Bisons and the key to them winning two straight league championships. The Aces' performance in Anchorite was certainly noticed and rewarded as the two Carnegies and McIntyre were able to sign with Shanigwin uh, Sh of the uh, Quebec uh, Provincial Hockey League. This was a step up as the QPHL was a senior league and offered competitive pay that would let the players now make living wages simply from playing hockey. This was now also a good situation for Herb as he started to think of his now growing family and the ability to support them through wages made playing hockey. The Aces spent the 1944-45 season in Schneeguin and then moved on to Sherbrooke for the 1945-46 season and the 46-47 season. They would tear up the league and Herb would win MVP in 1946 and 1947. Herb's performance spoke for itself, and the fact that it was in the senior leagues added volumes to his accomplishments. To put it uh, in numbers, in his first four seasons in the QPHL, Herb tallied 339 points in 179 games, and this was against competition that included future and past NHLers 
even some future Hockey Hall of Famers like the aforementioned Frank Mahoplich. The Aces would break up for a season as in 1948 brought some new opportunities for the trio, especially Herb. While Ozzie and Manny moved on to France to play for the 46, play in the 47-48 season, Herb stayed in Sherbrooke and had an astounding season, putting up 127 points in 56 games that year. This was a performance that no one in the hockey world could ignore, and they didn't. He was finally noticed by the right people, and it seemed like his dream of playing in the NHL might actually have a, a chance of coming true. His talent was too hard was too it was just too hard to ignore his talent anymore it was too great it was he shown too much it looked like black or not he was too good of a player not to get a serious look from an nhl club and that's exactly what would happen in the summer of 1948 more on that look and the results of it coming up in the second period after this Although 88 and blind is a result of glaucoma, Carnegie, very alert, hasn't forgotten how his NHL career was derailed. In 1948, he felt he deserved to make the Rangers out of training camp, but was told to go to the minors. The deeper cut actually came 11 years earlier, when Maple Leaf founder Con Smythe decided he couldn't play for Toronto. I was good enough for the Leafs, because according to Con Smythe, I would take Carnegie tomorrow for the Maple Leafs if someone can turn them white. Now I got that statement when I was 18. How would you feel? I feel awful. I can't forget it because he cut my knees off. He broke my legs. <laughs> horrible. So I don't want people to go through that. <laughs> I can go back to that, that very moment when Ed Willie had me at the side of the boards and, and telling me the story. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Carnegie needed a few minutes, his daughter Bernice helping, before he could continue. I loved the game, and I feel cheated. I didn't get the chance to prove myself wrong. I just had a door closed where I couldn't participate. So that was a little bit more from the Elliot Friedman interview with Herb uh, that we heard a little bit from earlier but this one is probably the most powerful that you're going to hear uh, throughout the entire day and something I really want you to pay attention to uh, as we start the second period uh, we're going to concentrate on that 1948 foray with the uh, Rangers and we're going to go very much in depth because that's pretty much what this entire period is going to be about uh, but what I don't want to gloss over is the reaction that you heard from Herb Carnegie when speaking about the famous quote from Conn Smythe about turning him white, um, it, it's just powerful. The man had accomplished so much at that point, uh, and, and it moved on largely from his hockey career and his hockey aspirations, um, and should be proud uh, of where he was 
but you just to hear that that still haunted him so much to that day is amazing um at the end of his life and no one should have to go through that no absolutely not and i think that's the tragedy of herb carnegie's story right there so uh, i hope that you took it to heart like i did and um that you understood it just as much as i did and what the effect was on the man but uh Leading off the second period, I just want to say it's now 1948 and Herb is making a big name for himself in the ranks of senior hockey. His two straight Quebec Provincial League MVP awards in 1946 and 47 ensured that Herb was not simply known as a good player, but a great one. In fact, the mere idea that NHL clubs could ignore him and his results was ridiculous. He had proven that he was a bona fide prospect and with the results to go along with it, it was obvious that you couldn't ignore his talent anymore. I mean, how can you not seriously consider someone who scored 127 points in 56 games during the 1947-48 season in one of Canada's top minor leagues as someone who could not make the jump right away to the NHL? Seems ludicrous, and it was. But as we see, uh, as we're about ready to talk about here, um, one NHL club actually used some common sense here and did notice Herb. Sure, race was still at play, and it for the reason that Herb didn't get a look up until this point. But after all, in 1948, Herb was now 28, a bit further northern, north of your average prospect age. But he had the results behind him, but his race had kept him in the QPHL and out of NHL systems. But now it was almost 10 years after Herb started his quest to the NHL, and things were a little bit different in the world of race and sports by then. Most notably on April 15, 1947, Jackie Robinson broke the Major League uh, Baseball's color barrier and changed the game for black athletes in all of sports. It seemed like the world might be changing and Herb Carnegie's world could change with it. In the summer of that year, Herb's world did change. He received a letter that he had deserved to get but never did from an NHL club an invitation to training camp to try out for a spot on the club. As he described it, his wife handed him an envelope that was obviously from the New York Rangers, and to his surprise, he was invited to their training camp in August for a chance to join the team. It looked like his dream of playing in the NHL was now a real and serious possibility. Herb reported to Rangers camp, and as expected, did a great job to showcase his talents and endear himself to the Rangers staff and his fellow players. After about a week, Rangers management approached him and wanted to sign him to the team and place him in the EHL with the New York Rovers. Herb wanted to sign, but he knew he was better than two levels below the NHL. And as he saw it, the NA he was NHL ready now. But the Rangers just wanted to get him into the system and let Herb show that he could play at that point. They basically had said, we just want to see if you could play. Herb knew he could play and figured his own performance in the QPHL was enough to justify him being on the NHL roster straight away. So he turned down the offer, but management was fine with that as they uh, regrouped and continued on with camp. Then, a few days after that, the team again approached Herb about signing with the Rangers. Herb thought he had made it clear that he wanted to sign to play for the Rangers, not one of their minor league teams. But the team was still stuck on the idea that they wanted to see Herb play in their system before moving him up to the big club in the NHL. The offer this time was to place Herb with their AHL affiliate in Connecticut, 
not only one level below the NHL team. Herb was still not happy with the offer, but needed to take it seriously. He would be close to the NHL with a possibility of being an injury away from making a call-up to the Rangers. It wasn't the NHL, but it was close. It would be for less money, uh, and that seemed to be a problem for Carnegie uh, if he was to play in the AHL. He was now supporting a family, and he also once again wondered why his play at training camp and in the QPHL wasn't enough to speak for itself to make the Rangers. So, once again, he turned down the Rangers' offer. The Rangers still let Herb finish their training camp, as they considered him to be in someone they could possibly sign later on. They, but still, he left Rangers camp that year in 48 with no contract and no guarantee that they'd be calling uh, him after he went back to the QPHL. All the Rangers players knew that he should have been that things should have gone differently, but alas, the team and Herb could not come to an agreement, and Herb never got that call from the Rangers, and thus never joined the ranks of NHL players. So could have Curb Carnegie have been the first black player to play in the NHL? I mean, when you seriously look at it, we'll never really know. Sure, he could have been called up from the AHL if he had signed with New York, but there's no guarantee that they do that. I'd argue that the social climate was finally at that time ready for it, but then again, was hockey ready for that? The Rangers seemed to like Carnegie's play on the ice, and they even, uh, you know, and they even were offering him a spot in the AHL. So they looked to be serious about letting him join the big club. Uh, but had they been very serious about it, they might have offered Herb a little bit more money to offset the offset the losses that he'd take by playing in the AHL versus the uh, QPHL. I totally understand where Herb was coming from. Uh, on the money aspect and supporting his family. And the Rangers should have been more understanding of that, really. Still, I really have a hard time with Herb's position for really one reason. That if he was so good to make the NHL, the move to the AHL would only be really temporary when you think about it. And uh, when he moved up to the NHL, the income gap that he was worried about would certainly melt away as he'd make enough uh, to offset anything that he was much make much much more than he was making in the QPHL the short-term pain uh, really could have got him a lot of long-term gain uh, still when there's a family involved all of us out there with families know this uh, he had to do what he had to do uh, in the end herb did make the right decision I think for his life uh, and that kept him from breaking the color barrier and, and sure, he had a very good reason, and the Rangers could have done more to make it happen if they really wanted him, I, I think, uh, if they really wanted to make the statement uh, and do kind of what Branch Ritchie had done with uh, Jackie Robinson in, in Brooklyn. So uh, that's where I kind of have a problem with what the Rangers did. If they really wanted Herb and they wanted to make a statement and, and break the NHL's cover barrier, they would have worked harder at it. Uh, the only issue I have with Herb is... Uh, could you have gone through a little bit of short-term pain to get to that long-term gain? But, I mean, when you have a family, money is money, income is income. Uh, so, uh, like I said, I, I really have a hard time completely faulting, faulting either the Rangers or Carnegie because who knew exactly what uh, the Rangers' plans for Herb were. Uh, 
So in the end, Herb didn't become the first black NHL player, and it took another 10 years for Willie O'Ree to finally break that color barrier. Still, when you look at it, Herb had the talent and the resolve to make it. The circumstances just really didn't play out. But that's okay in the end because uh, Herb, being Herb, still went on to accomplish great things in hockey and life after that, for most part. And it cannot be stressed enough. He had a great life uh, post-hockey that we're going to talk about here in the next period. And that's where we'll, you know, we're going to pick it up in the third period uh, and talk about the later years and the legacy of Ker- Herb Carnegie. So stand by. That's up next. It is a testament to Mr. Carnegie's strength of character that he did not let what happened embitter him for the rest of his life. Instead, he used it as motivation to try and affect change, to try and make things better. His efforts worked, and he's being recognized. This school, being built just north of Toronto, is being named in his honor. As much fun as I had in the game, I had pain because I couldn't have that other step. Now, I don't want that to happen to anybody else. Carnegie started a popular hockey school, Future Aces, then created a foundation under the same name. For more than 50 years, he's worked to improve relations. He was drawn into a Spider-Man comic, helping Spuddy stop smugglers from using pucks to transport drugs. An honorary chief of police, he's achieved what he promised to do. What helped me, in a sense, to design a code, not of conduct, but a a philosophy for behavior. And when I wrote that statement, in my pain and my anger, I smiled. And I smiled because I said, Herb, if you can do that, you're going to be okay in this world. Mission accomplished. That's another segment from the Elliot Friedman interview with Herb and we want to take away from that and I, I think sets the stage well for what we're going to talk about in the third period is uh, Herb gets done with his life in hockey and he really turned things around um, for himself mentally, came to grips and understood that he still had a lot to offer and he needed to give back and, and teach people the lessons that he had. And I think that's the greatest part of Herb Carnegie's experience really is what happened to him in his later years and how he inspired so many people uh, of all races, of, uh, of all colors, really, to just uh, excel in life and, and be good. Uh, and as you'll see, uh, he, he did that. The Future Aces Creed and the Future Aces Foundation that he did is, is amazing. And, and like I said, he could have been a very bitter person, but he didn't. He, he didn't do. He didn't go that way. And thank goodness he didn't. While it may have seemed like the disappointment of things not working out with the Rangers would have sunk Herb's spirit, it really didn't. As a matter of fact, Herb's 1948-49 season, while not as astounding as the 127.47-48 campaign, uh, was another gem when he returned to the QPHL. Uh, he was reunited with Ozzie and Manny, uh, who were back from France, and he notched 71 points in 63 games in his return to Sherbrooke and won his third QPHL MVP in four seasons. Not bad after being rejected by the Rangers uh, for all intents and purposes. He, he obviously wasn't letting that bother him too much. 
It was after this season that he got another great opportunity. A blight, it was not at the same level uh, of opportunity maybe as playing for the Rangers, but when Punch Imlach called him uh, to join him in Quebec City to make the Aces into a winner, he couldn't resist turning down his former uh, friend. Uh, he would, uh, it, it would mean that he wouldn't be able to play with Ozzy and Manny anymore, but this meant a bigger stage, a bit more money, and the opportunity to play with some great players in a great city. Herb was great for punching the Aces. He was once again, as he was in, in Sherbrooke, a point-of-game player in three of his four seasons in Quebec City. Uh, and in the 51-52 season and 52-53 seasons, Herb got to play with one of the best ever, the great Jean Beliveau. Carnegie speaks very fondly of his time playing with Beliveau and describes the man's greatness in hockey and outside of it. And I think uh, it's a testament that both of them remain true and great friends uh, throughout their lives. In the 1952-53 season, that was his last with the Aces, and Herb's production slowed just a little bit as injuries and time started to catch up with him. He'd go on to play one more season uh, after that, moving to the Ontario Senior League to be a little bit closer to home as his family was still in Toronto the entire time he was playing Quebec. Uh, as he signed with Owen Sound, uh, but once again found him, but at this point had a bit of a rebound, found himself uh, among the uh, league's best scorers in the Ontario Senior League, uh, getting back to that point-of-game pace. But after that season, Herb's now 34, and he's starting to realize that the NHL wasn't going to really call again, and he was really tired about the distance he had to put between him and his family just to play hockey. Uh, and he really could have gone on, but he decided to call his hockey career quits at that point. And the funny thing is, we all should be glad he did, or else we would have missed out on all the great things that Herb accomplished after hockey. Soon after his retirement in 1954, Herb, who was coaching a uh, youth hockey team back in Toronto, was called about the team he was coaching from a local reporter. When asked about the team name, which at the time they really had none, Herb replied with, uh, the future aces. And this was the start of one of Herb's greatest legacies and the establishment of the Herb Carnegie Future Aces Hockey School. And also the establishment of a creed to foster diversity, respect, and tolerance in young people all over Canada. Um, Herb describes writing this with just the idea of being so cleansed when he wrote the Future Aces uh, creed uh, that he actually was moved to tears while he was making it. And to think that it's inspired so many children uh, in Canada, school children in Canada, is amazing. But uh, also add to that, too, later in 1987, the Future Aces would establish a scholarship program uh, and would help pave the way to university for many young students who wouldn't have actually been able to attend. Uh, so you can see, I mean, the man is already tangibly giving back through the Future Aces, but that's not it. He's got plenty more to his story that we're going to talk about here. Also, if Herb's pioneering in hockey wasn't enough, he kept at it in two very important fields after his hockey career. Taking a chance and making sure to continue to try and live up to his best expectations and what he could do in life, Herb decided to start a career in investment planning. He had no real background, but still decided to plead his case in an interview and charm the CEO of the Investors Guild and uh, made it known that he could become the best salesman uh, which he eventually did. Uh, 
just that interview when you read about it in the book is, is astounding because Herb went in there and just laid it on the line, told the guy he was going to be the best salesman, and in two years he was. At the time, there were virtually no black men in that field, but he rose to be one of the best producers in only a few short years. Once again, breaking barriers, understanding that his race is not something that needed to hold him back and getting in where he needed to get in. And if that wasn't enough, Herb, who loved golf almost as much as hockey, would go on to conquer the world of golf. Uh, part of the interesting part of this book, too, you'll hear at the beginning, is uh, play, learning to play golf with his brother Ozzy on fields that they would, uh, they would burn so that they could uh, hit the golf ball around. So kind of cool that somebody who learned and was taught that way was able to become so good. Uh, and how good did he become? Uh, he won club championships in and around Toronto in the 1960s and then moved on to the senior golf circuit in Canada, winning the Ontario Senior Championship in 1975, 1976, and 1982, and the Canadian Senior Championship two years in a row in 1977 and 1978. To me, that's the legacy of Herb Carnegie. He didn't tell, let anyone tell him no, and if they did, he found a way to prove them wrong on his terms. He did what he wanted to do. He wanted to play hockey in the NHL and pretty much was going to be able to, but he wanted to do it on his terms in terms that were fair. That's why it really didn't work out in the end. But he also inspired, wanted to inspire others and did so. He could have stopped after his career and tried not to make, and tried uh, to make the future aces into anything, uh, but he felt called to do a little bit more. Uh, just to make it a little bit more than just a hockey school. To me, that's the culmination of his later life and why his career in hockey matters so much. He took the struggle, heartache, and disappointment of not being in an inclusive enough, inclusive enough environment to be able to play in the NHL and tried to change that environment through being positive and sheer will. Uh, he, made, he made the trail for other black athletes to follow. Many see him as the best black player not to make the NHL, but I see him is more of one of the best hockey players of his era, black or white. Because as I said before, not everybody back then made the NHL. Uh, so to say that the standard was you have to make the NHL to be the best, I think doesn't really apply to the 40s uh, and 50s, so, especially most, uh, really most of the original six era. So when you look at it, it's easy to say Herb Carnegie was hands down one of the best hockey players in the 1940s and early 50s. Finally, though, for me, I loved hearing about Herb's ability to put it out there and get what he wanted. He never let racism stop him. He just continued to find his way and convince everyone around him that it didn't matter that he was black. He was the best in his trade and on the golf course. Hockey, investments, and golf, it didn't matter to Herb Carnegie. He was going to be the best, and he was. So with that, let's get to the postgame and wrap up our discussion after this. To this day, Herb Carnegie serves as a role model for young hockey players, and in particular, minority hockey players of all ages. It was no wonder that when the first Canadian multicultural hockey league was formed, Herb was consulted and invited to drop the ceremonial hockey puck in December 2005. Herbert H. Carnegie holds the distinction of being York Region's Honorary Chief of Police and has received several community service awards, including the Ontario Medal of Good Citizenship and having the North York Centennial Arena renamed after him. 
In addition, he has been inducted to seven Halls of Fame, including Canada Sports Hall of Fame, and he was granted the Queen's Silver Jubilee Medal, the Order of Ontario, and the prestigious Order of Canada. What was developed at a hockey school more than 50 years ago will culminate at a 50th year anniversary gala on March 30th this year to mark the creation of the Future Aces Creed. Former hockey players of the school, educators and beneficiaries of the Creed will be invited to celebrate this significant milestone. Herb Carnegie's love for the game of hockey has led him on a journey. A journey that, in his earlier years, he could never have dreamt of. One that he now considers a dream come true. I really like that clip uh, to wrap up this discussion about Herb Carnegie today because when you look at it, uh, the man's accomplishments really in the end were recognized. Uh, he won so many great awards. Uh, getting the Order of Canada, I think most of my friends north of the border understand what that means, but for all of you uh, folks here in the States, that's like getting the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Uh, so it's quite the big deal, and Herb Carnegie got that. Um, he was recognized in the end, and um, there's an elementary school named for him on the north side of Toronto now. So uh, it's just cool when you think about it. And that he went through so much, uh, bared such a you know burden of not being able to make the NHL because of his race, uh, as you heard uh, when he talked about the Con Smythe quote, uh, that he really in the end came, became a hero to the entire country of Canada. Uh, and I would argue for all of us in the States, has to be one here as well. So I think the best way to wrap up our discussion of A Fly on a Pail of Milk and Herb Carnegie is to simply say that this book is a story about a life well lived. As I finished off the third period in saying, in many more words, Herb's life was one that was well lived, and, but thank goodness he had the forethought to write this book for us to learn from it. And appreciate that life. Herb published the book in 2010, two years before he died in 2012. And like many humble people, uh, he had to be urged uh, by others uh, to decide to write his story, which uh, we all know is just too important not to share with the world. And thank goodness uh, for the power of persuasion in that regard. For me, it's always the stories of struggle and perseverance that really strike me as great. And Herb's story is exactly that. But what makes it different to me is just how realistically he lays out the racism he encountered by not pulling any punches on what happened and how it made him feel. And yet, for all that realism about something so heinous like encountering racism in his life, he totally keeps a positive outlook and spin on everything. His life is a testament to that positive move forward and to show the heinous people that they were wrong and perhaps change their minds and others with his actions. Still, if you focus on the racism, you'll miss the most important theme of Herbert Carnegie's story. Herb was an excellent human being, and no matter what the color of your skin is, you can learn from his excellent and diverse accomplishments. I personally walk away from uh, Fly in a Pail of Milk thinking that if Herb Carnegie could do all of what he did despite such setbacks, maybe the issues I face in life really aren't that bad. But overall, what is Herb's legacy? What did he leave behind for the world? To me, it's a lot more than just goals and assists for us to appreciate. As 
through his work with the future aces, his efforts uh, to live, uh, you know, look past his life. And all that uh, is because he cared enough to share the lessons uh, that he learned and help others to succeed despite the challenges that he had. He's received some big recognitions, as we kind of alluded to earlier, for his efforts, such as induction into the Canada Sports Hall of Fame in 2001, induction into the Ontario Sports Hall of Fame in 2014, the Order of Ontario, and the Order of Canada. Like I said, uh, for my friends in the States who don't understand what that is, that's uh, their ver- the Canadian version of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Still, one of the biggest honors Herb does not have is enshrinement in the Hockey Hall of Fame. He's obviously deserving for his play and most of all for his contributions to the game. If you agree, I suggest you look up Rain Carnegie, that's Herb's grandson's efforts, to get his granddad into the inducted in the hall. It's worthwhile and Rain could use our help. So seek it out. It's over a lot of good uh, articles on the internet and uh, resources to help out with that effort. So in the end, I hope you really go out and take a moment to pick up and read A Fly in a Pail of Milk. It's an important hockey story and a fairly easy read. I promise you, you'll walk away a better hockey fan and a better person. Herb's story is one that is often forgotten, but is every bit as important as, say, Willie O'Ree's. The perseverance he showed, the way he faced racism, was the model that helped O'Ree finally break through and help help change the environment enough to allow him to break through, even if Herb himself couldn't. I learned a lot, and I know you will too if you just take the time to read it. So, I think there's a ton more we could say, and obviously I'm going to leave this week's episode right here and let you get on with your day. But understand, there's a lot more to the Herb Carnegie story, and I hope you uh, do a little bit of extra research. But most of all, uh, I'm so happy you decided to take a listen to this important story and to support and uh, you know to support the show in our first episode of this second season. It's been a great ride, and I really appreciate all your support and really just appreciate you tuning in. As always, if you like what you hear, please give us a review and a follow on your favorite podcast type place. And if you want more info on our featured books or just need some hockey fun in your life, follow the podcast page on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Also, if you have a comment or a suggestion, feel free to give me an email at fromthepointpodcast16 at gmail.com. Okay then, so looking ahead to next week, we're going to continue with another important story that directly ties to this week's story. Uh, and We'll be examining the recently published autobiography of Willie O'Ree titled Willie, the game-changing story of the NHL's first black player by Willie O'Ree and Michael McKinley. It's a great book, and it's an even better story as we continue to celebrate the accomplishments of black hockey pioneers this month in recognition of Black History Month. So thanks for tuning in, and stay classy, hockey fans. I'll see you soon.